0: Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Today we interview communications disorder professor Lindsay Jorgensen. Lindsay's work is on the cutting edge of research related to blast-exposed trauma, but for her, the research is personal. Her husband, who served in Afghanistan, reported hearing loss after returning home from combat. Traditional hearing tests suggested his hearing was normal. However, Lindsay knew there was more to the story. In the first of two episodes on post-traumatic stress disorder, we discussed the complexities of hearing loss, PTSD, and its relationship with blast-exposed trauma. Hi, Lindsay. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing great. It's pretty early this morning. But we're, we're here <laughs> this morning, so it's great.
0: You're a communications disorder um, professor here at, at USD. I'm curious if you can just maybe describe what that all entails to our audience who might not be familiar with that um, area of study.
1: Great. So the Communication sciences and disorders department is primarily two professions, audiology and speech language pathology. Um, the undergrad is the, the same, and so people learn about communication disorders and, and normal communication and hearing and balance and those things. And then once we go to graduate school, we become two different professions, a speech-language pathologist. Speech-language pathology is very uh, focused on speech, language swallowing, uh, cognition, things like that. And then audiology is focused more on hearing and balance disorders. So I'm an audiologist, and audiology... Um, has has many different facets. We have pediatric audiology, cochlear implants, hearing aids, uh, balance disorders. Those things. I primarily am an adult person related to hearing loss and, and hearing aids themselves. But that's part of my job. The other part of my job is teaching. Um, so we do do all of our classes and those things. But we also run a full clinic here on campus uh, for adults and children with communication disorder. So that's part of my job as well. And then the other part of my job is, is research as well. So
0: You know, I'm curious, what you know, inspired you to kind of pursue this path of, of research and study?
1: That's a very interesting question. Most people who go into audiology initially started as speech pathologists, because not many people know about the field of audiology in general. I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon, and so I was, thought was very interested in the brain and how the brain works and, and how we uh, are able to use parts of our brain in different functions. I did see my first neurosurgery when I was in um, undergraduate studies at the University of Washington. And I realized how stressful of a job that would be and, and that that's not really something that I wanted. I didn't want that kind of true life in my hands. But I realized how important it was to communicate with the family members as to really what was going on, especially in difficult, stressful times. And so I started kind of looking into how can I be a part of medicine that really helps with that communication. I then got involved in some research on uh, regenerating part of the ear um, in animal models realized I wanted to work with with adults and humans and not just animal models and so I then got into the field of audiology during uh, I then moved from Seattle to Pittsburgh where I was pursuing my AUD which is the entry-level doctoral degree to practice audiology And I decided that um, actually a professor came to me and said, have you ever considered a Ph.D.? Because the types of questions that you ask in class are not just clinical type questions. You're really asking why questions that we don't have the answers to. So it was really important for me when I did get a Ph.D. that I was still clinical. And that's one of the things that USD has really allowed me to do is stay in the clinic as well as do my research, because I really feel like research is as a clinical foundation.
0: Well, and what are some of those you know, research areas that you focus here on USD?
1: So here at USD, I t- tend to do hearing loss cognition and hearing aid research, so kind of the combination of those. Cognition in in kind of two different facets, although they're very different, they're also very interrelated. I really look at things like dementia, cognitive decline, and aging, as well as more traumatic brain injury and people who've had concussions or things specifically related to, to war injuries.
0: No. And, and, you know, that was kind of the next um, avenue that I wanted to go down was, you know, your relationship, I think, with um, some of this research, you kind of have a personal connection, especially kind of the, I think, traumatic brain injury and, um, you know, wounded veterans kind of coming home from Afghanistan or Iraq or combat situations. I don't know if you can just tell us a little bit about your history um, involved with that research and maybe how you're connected to it.
1: Absolutely. So during uh, your your schooling for the the clinical doctor at the AUD, uh, you do a fourth year or kind of like a residency. And at that time, I knew I wanted to work with adults, so I worked at the the VA um, in Pittsburgh. And then after I finished my AUD and while completing my PhD, I continued to work at the VA. At that time, my husband returned from Afghanistan, and my husband um, told me he had hearing loss. And so, you know, being the good audiology and audiology student I was, I tested his hearing um, using the traditional push the button when you hear the beep, repeat the words back. And his hearing was perfectly normal. So I thought, you know, kind of, well, what's going on? And then, you know, as he was home and things started happening, I actually noticed his hearing was worse. And I noticed this when we would go out to dinner. He was really struggling in situations that he wouldn't have struggled before. Now, you know, there's also some hypervigilance or that that more aware of his surroundings. And so I kind of portrayed it as maybe he just wasn't paying attention, those things. And then as I started thinking about it, you know, maybe there was really something that happened over there. And when pushing him and and he didn't want to come forward with a lot of the things that had happened over there, but he was blast exposed, meaning that there was an explosion near him that didn't really hurt him as much as it did. um, But he felt that wave. And so I started thinking about how those things could really impact the auditory system and not the ears, which is what our traditional um, testing looks at, but also how does that impact the brain and the brain's ability to process those sounds. Ironically, when this all, when we started thinking about this at the same time, I was doing some of the compensation and pension exams for the VA, which is equivalent to like a workman's compensation claim. And I was seeing quite a few of these young 20-year-old veterans who would come in and they would, you know, almost like say, I have hearing loss, I have hearing loss. And when we tested their hearing, their hearing was normal and they would become very frustrated. At the same time as well, we would see veterans come in and especially young veterans and faking hearing losses. And we couldn't quite figure out why would they be faking hearing losses. But but we kind of figured out that maybe they were faking the hearing loss because they kept saying – I have hearing loss, and their test is is normal. So I need to fake a hearing loss so that they believe me, and and it's very frustrating frustrating as I could imagine. Where you're saying that there's this problem, but the doctor's not listening to you.
0: Well, and I I don't know if you know not to get too far into the weeds, maybe, but when we talk about. Uh, A hearing test, Uh, is that kind of, you know, raise your right hand if you hear it from your right ear, raise the left? I mean, and so is the work to now develop a more sophisticated test um, to to really kind of try to dig into what's going on with these returning veterans?
1: You know, that's a really good question. The traditional test, which is raise your right hand when you hear the beep or um, and then we do a, a test of clarity, which is like something like say the word love, say the word pale, you know, and repeating those back. Those are in quiet. And yes, it's looking for clarity, but those kinds of tests are very simple tasks. And, and you know, we always say that like a four-year-old could do that task. And so those kind of simple tasks are not necessarily a test of your brain hearing. And when talking with these veterans, my husband included, it's not the one-on-one in quiet that they struggle with. It's the difficult listening situations like at a restaurant when there's background noise or any kind of um, even like noise in the car where there's anything else that's going on that really can can impact the brain's ability to separate out what I want to hear from what I don't want to hear. Now, in the field of audiology, there are a lot of tests out there that go deeper into this um, process of of the way that the brain processes speech. But they aren't typically used in a clinical manner. You know, audiologists say, well, I don't have time to do that or, you know, those things. And so we, we refer on to to a specialist. So I think one of the goals is to kind of say what tests should we be doing when all the other tests are coming back normal? but the patient is still complaining of difficulty.
0: You know, you you obviously spoke about your own personal experience with this. I'm sure that that adds a certain level of gravity, you know, to it. I'm curious, do you know any research about how many veterans come home from conflict situations and experience, you know, this type of hearing loss?
1: You know, we really have no idea. I think that it's very interesting to think about why would some people... Two people who are exposed to the same thing, why would one person be affected and one, one not? We do know um, that the rates of hearing loss and ringing in the ears called tinnitus or tinnitus, depending on how you want to say it, um, are the number one and number two service-connected disabilities among veterans. So we know that, that the ringing in the ears and the, the hearing loss are really, really common among veterans. But this kind of auditory processing, we don't really know how common it is because we don't have a standardized test. The other thing is that majority of the tests that are out there are really used for children, and there's a really um, large field called central auditory processing disorder. and But most of those tests are really made for, for children who are st- struggling in school with what we would call like a child who would have this their whole lives. This is more of an acquired disorder. And so we're curious, is, is, is there a difference? And, and should we be using different tests for them on something that's acquired as opposed to something that someone was born with?
0: You know, it's a lot to kind of unpack. I mean... I don't want you to kind of hypothesize, you you know, because obviously you're doing the research, but to me, I question, is it a a physical, you know, um, disability where, you know, there's something broken or is it more of a mental, um, uh, you know, uh, issue where... you know, they have a hard time focusing, or maybe they're too focused, right? Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that, maybe kind of the difference between, and I'm sure it's really complicated when you're talking about issues, you know, obviously with the brain, right? Um, And and hearing, I I don't know if you can kind of unpack that, that, distinction between maybe the physical aspect of it and and maybe the the mental?
1: You know, I definitely think that that there are two things going on. One is a physiologic difference. And, you know, maybe, and and this is all hypothesis, obviously not that we really understand, but maybe the connections were a certain way. And and when we have blast exposure, the way that blasts, if you think of a blast as just a really big wind, sudden wind to your body, Um, the way that it transfers through the body is very different depending upon the structure. So we know that that blast waves g- travel through the body differently between tissues and fluids and uh, bone. And so the problem with the ear and the brain is that they're composed of all three of those things bones, tissue and fluids. And so when you're thinking about that there's going to be some some shearing and tearing physiologically and the brain is going to have to repair itself. And whether it repairs itself in the correct order or it repairs itself just to the best that it can, we don't truly understand the effects of blasts at this point majority of the blast data on the physiology is is in my studies and rat studies but we do know that there is an actual difference in the way that the brain puts itself back together so we do know that there's that physiologic difference additionally people some people when they come back from war are mentally different and so there there's a lot of things like ptsd and a post-traumatic stress disorder, for those of you that, that don't know what PTSD is, and that hypervigilance or that paying more aware to being more aware of the things that are around you. So I think it's probably a combination of that physiologic difference, as well as some of the, the underlying complications of mental disorders.
0: You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. First of all, can you just maybe define it for the audience who may, who may not have any familiarity with it? Sure.
1: Post-traumatic stress disorder is something that we've been talking about for a really long time. There are quite a few professors here on campus kind of studying the history of PTSD. For example, Kurt Hackamer in the, the history department is looking way back like at the Civil War at something we called shell shock. Well, shell shock is probably PTSD, you know, and so we're really, you know, we've been talking about PTSD for a very long time. And post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't just apply to people who've been in combat. But what it means is that you have some kind of, of physiologic, whether that be anxiety, whether that be avoidance, response, to a situation that you experienced that now is overlying a current situation. So rape victims, people who've been in serious car accidents, all those people can also have PTSD. Now it's in the forefront of news and directly related to to military experience. And um, when there is a tragedy in the military, You know, as far as something that's happened afterwards, whether we're talking about mass shootings or suicide, one of the things that people often point to is that PTSD, where these people are taking, are are unable to let go of some of the, underlying stress and anxiety of, of a past experience and letting that influence their current life.
0: How prevalent is PTSD among veterans?
1: You know, I don't know the actual statistics on it, but, you know, it definitely is is pretty high. I would say probably around a third of, of veterans probably have some form of PTSD. It's not diagnosed that high. Um, PTSD is one of those things that as with any mental disorder is not very well recognized as, as far as, um, Patients being able to recognize that and going and seeing a physician for the treatment of that, it's still kind of one of those hidden disorders.
0: Yeah, I tried to do a little bit of research to prepare for the podcast today, and I was really surprised by the variation, you know, as, as you kind of talked about, um, kind of the different, you know, measurements that people use for PTSD, um, how it's sort of measured by the war, um, because, you know, different conflict situations have different intensity um how often the combatants were exposed um to to issues that may later cause ptsd one of the relationships though that i found really interesting was how when you know a, a veteran returns immediately from from a conflict situation um they are at a lower risk of PTSD, or at least they test that way. Um, but if you test the same population a year or even two years later, um, the rates dramatically rise. I don't know if, if you have any, uh, you know, information or thoughts maybe on that of why those rates go up. If it's you know difficulty adjusting, or, or if it's you know maybe more honesty uh, a year after you know they return from one of these situations. You know,
1: it's really interesting because when you're thinking about this. You know, uh, the military is a wonderful organization, um, but it's very regimented. It's you're going to get up at the same time. You're going to make your bed. You're going to do this. You're going to go to work. And it's very regimented. And people will report that the reason that that they don't have as much problem when they immediately return or even in combat or in theater, as we, we call it, that's the war zone is called theater. Um is because it's very regimented, right? You're doing the same thing and all the people around you are experiencing the same thing you are. So it's almost a camaraderie and, and, and a routine. When they return home, especially a year later, they've had to get back into their, the family life, the kids, the wife, the other things that are going on in their life and they realize that, that there's not as much of a routine and that lack of routine, I think you know, personally will, would significantly impact that, that PTSD
0: Where do you think this field is going? I think it's obviously just with the number of returning you know, veterans we have coming home from conflict situations, unfortunately, these problems kind of are, are getting bigger and they're growing. You know, in the next five to 10 years, if you were going to try to take a, a, an outlook, are we going to have more accurate tests um, for veterans? Are we going to have maybe better treatment, um, You know, better maybe tools to prevent you know these, these sorts of injuries from occurring in the first place?
1: You know, that's a really good question, especially given that, you know, approximately 1% of our population is the military. Um, You know, it's a very low percentage. And these, these people are going back to war time after time after time. Uh, my brother is also a, a veteran, and he was deployed ve- several times. You know, his uh, his unit, uh, my brother has, is now out of the military because he has lost a leg, um, but his unit has deployed 10 times in the last five to se- or seven years. So, you know, these people are going back time after time after time. And so I think that we're probably going to see a, an increase in the amount of PTSD just because the people are going back time and time again. Furthermore, I, I think that people are, are being more aware of mental illness. That being said, I don't think that the mili- that people who are in the military are as likely to report mental illness. Um, you know, they, they feel like it's their job, that this is what they signed up to do. So I, I think it's definitely a, a seesaw of we're more aware of mental mental illness. On the other hand, are these people less likely to report it because they want to continue with their unit. they want to they don't want to be the guy that that quit on their unit because of a mental disorder.
0: You know, in your experience, have you found is there any effective treatment um, for this type of hearing loss?
1: For the hearing loss, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're studying. You know, that's what we don't know. Is there a, is there a treatment for this? And, and I think that there are several possible treatments out there. But one of the things that we're looking at is, can we appropriately diagnose this? And then for the hearing loss... What can we do about it? You know, are there are there short term are there short term solutions? Are there long term solutions? And so the the study that I'm currently doing has two parts. One is the diagnosis part, and one is the treatment part.
0: Um, you know, maybe to kind of get a little bit more reflective, I I think you kind of have a cool journey. You you know, talked about your initial interest maybe in um because you know doing neurosurgery and you know how that really kind of directly relates to the research that you do right now with audiology. You know, I'm curious if, if someone is, uh, you know, maybe a prospective student and they're thinking about, you know, trying to get into a career, you know, like communications disorder, what advice would you give them? Um, what experience would you, you know, suggest they maybe go out and seek before they kind of jumped into that career?
1: You know, absolutely. I, I love this field. I think that we are a very growing field. We're always on the the top 10, you know, most needed jobs. I, I, there's always jobs. There are way more jobs than, than audiologists. And so as far as, like, parents are concerned, parents love to hear <laughs> that, that we have, a, you know, 100% job placement. So I think that, that that's really something to think about. But as far as experiences... You do get a lot of experience in graduate school, but I would say making sure that this is what you want to do. Now, it is a requirement of our field that you have 25 hours of observation before you go to graduate school, which I think is great. Um, But especially, you know, when there are a lot more speech pathologists than audiologists, people... Tend to just do speech pathology observation, but do make sure that you get some audiology observation and some some pediatrics and some adults and some some things that are not just hearing aids. Really looking at, at deep um, issues into some of these uh, underlying causes.
0: You know, I, I think it's cool because it's you know one of those areas where you get to help people, and I, I you know in kind of those service you know careers, um, you know it, it you know. Uh, well, to be honest with you, not often do you get 100% job placement, you know, and also get to, you know, make a really substantial impact on people. I- I'm curious, you know, you've, I think, led a pretty interesting career. Um, obviously, you're accomplished, have a PhD. You know, I like to ask this question of our guests, um, kind of to wrap up, you know, the interview. I'm just curious, you know, at this point in your career, um, y- you know, you've been at USD for what, about six years now? Um What do you know for sure, you know, at this at this point as a researcher, as an audiologist, as a professor, as a teacher, um, you know, as a wife uh, of someone who maybe suffers from one of the disorders that you study? what, What do you know for sure at this point?
1: What I know for sure is I love what I do. And I think that that's something that's really been impactful for me. And I would hope that everyone finds something that they love what they do. I will also say things that we know are, this is a, a, a very large growing field. Audiology is a very new profession in relative to medicine. We, we've we only been around since about World War II. And so we're a very new profession. It's growing. There are lots of places where we can expand. There's also a lot that we don't know. And, you know, I think that for a really long time, we thought we knew everything about pushing the button when you hear the beep. And then we're realizing that that it's not just the ears that hear, it's the brain. Helen Keller, when asked would she rather be deaf or blind, she said that she'd rather be blind than deaf because blindness takes you away from things, but deafness takes you away from people. And so really one of the things that I know is communication with with our loved ones, with our significant others, and with our community is really something that's important to most people. They really want to be able to have those relationships and communication is the way that we have those relationships.
0: Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we continue our investigation into post-traumatic stress disorder and speak with Associate Professor of Basic Biomedical Sciences, Lee Ba, about the interplay between genetics and PTSD. Until next time, go Yotes.